speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 17 of the Man of Screen podcast. My name is Mike Zumo, and on this episode, I am going to move into the Adventures of Superman television series proper by covering the first two episodes of the series, Superman on Earth and The Haunted Lighthouse. Now before I get into that, there's just a couple of announcements I want to make regarding the show. I am recording this episode on the evening of Sunday, June 5th, 2016, and as of today, I wanted to announce that the first episode of Man of Screen Extra, which was the conversation I had at the end of April regarding the way Superman was used on CBS's Supergirl television series, just overtook my special from March on Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice as the most downloaded show on the feed. So I would like to thank everybody who downloaded that show, and I would like to thank Bob Fisher and Rebecca Johnson who joined me on that episode for making it the success that it was. And also, while we're on the subject of Man of Screen Extra, there's a couple announcements I want to make. This episode is scheduled to drop on Tuesday, June 21st, and I am planning for the next episode of Man of Screen Extra, episode number three, to be about the new power structure at Warner Brothers. You know, Jeff Johns and John Berg being kind of promoted to the head of DC Films. So that's going to be episode three of Man of Screen Extra. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think about that and my hopes for the future of the films. I'm, as of this recording, I'm hoping to line up some guests, but I am making no promises. So you can look forward to that at the end of this month. And for the July episode of Man of Screen Extra, I'm going to take a look at the extended cut of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, that R-rated cut that we've all heard so much about. Again, maybe I'll have some guests, maybe not, I don't know. Those details will become available in due time. And in August, I am going to release an episode covering the newest DCEU film, Suicide Squad. So I just wanted to get some of that information out there. And just let you know what's in the hopper coming up for Man of Screen Extra. You can also check out the Facebook page for more information as I put it up. So I just wanted to put right there that about the first episode becoming the most popular show on the feed. And I just wanted to thank everybody for listening and for anyone who participated in it. I look forward to having both Bob and Rebecca on the show in the future. So, with that being said, I am going to take a quick break, play a promo. And I'm going to come back with the first episode of The Adventures of Superman. Right after this, hang around. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Atom Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right, welcome back, folks. Here we go. Superman on Earth. This episode was directed by Tommy Carr, and it was written by Robert Maxwell and Whitney Ellsworth. Obviously, in addition to our regular cast of George Reeves as Clark Kent and Superman, 
Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane. This episode also marked the first appearance of Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen and John Hamilton as Perry White. Guest stars included Herbert Rawlison as Roseanne, Stuart Randall as Gauguin, Aline Town as Lara, Francis Morris as Sarah Kent, Danny Sue Nolan as Ms. Backrack, Perry's receptionist, and Wheaton Chambers as a Krypton Council member, Harry Cording as a bus driver, Tom Fadden as Eben Kent, Sam Flint as Eben's doctor, and Dabs Greer as the man who was saved from the dirigible fall. This episode was aired for the first time on September 19th, 1952, and here is our synopsis brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Come with us now on a far journey, a journey that takes us millions of miles from the Earth, where many years ago, the planet Krypton burned like a green star in the endless heavens. Here, civilization was far advanced. It had brought forth a race of supermen, men and women like ourselves, but advanced to the absolute peak of human perfection. As we near Krypton, we see high above the city the magnificent Temple of Wisdom with its marble columns and burning torches. Jorel, Krypton's leading man of science, has been summoned to address a special meeting of the governing council. White-bearded Roseanne, supreme leader of the council, calls the meeting to order. Scientist Jor-El has been unsuccessful in convincing the ruling council of Krypton that the planet will face its own destruction very soon. Yes, tell us, Mr. Scientist. Where do we go in these fantastic spaceships of yours? To the Earth, Kogan. To the planet Earth, Kogan. My studies tell me the Earth has an atmosphere almost identical with our own. You studied too much, my friend. Kogan is right, Jor-El. You have been working too hard. Wait. Do you hear that, Roseanne? Gentlemen. I hear only thunder. <laughs> it is not thunder. It is an internal eruption. Gas exploding in subterranean pockets. <laughs> I warn you. The time will come. And that time is perhaps very near at hand when you will wish you'd heeded the words of Jorel. When Krypton is shattered into a hundred million stars. When the glorious civilization we have built is no more. When you and your families are swept from the face of this planet like dust. In spite of the laughter and jeers of his peers, Jorel continues to test the prototype of a rocket that he has invented. Should the model work, he can leave Krypton with his wife Lara and son Kal-El in a full-size version. Unfortunately, massive tremors from a gigantic quake predict the death of the alien world sooner than Jorel had expected. Lara, listen to me. This is the end. Krypton is breaking apart. What can we do? No, I was a fool to have waited this long. It wasn't your fault, Jarell. Well, I should have built a larger ship months ago. Now we have only the model. Lara. Yes? The model can carry only one of us. You, Lara. No. If only one of us can be saved, it should be the child. All right, get him. Wrap him in the blanket and bring him here. He and Lara have been forced to place their child into the small spacecraft. Buildings crumble as the ship is launched, and Krypton explodes into thousands of fragments as the vessel carrying Kal-El hurtles through the blackness of space. Eben and Sarah Kent are on what appears to be a Sunday drive when they hear a whistling in the skies above Smallville. A rocket has crashed in a nearby field. The craft has also caught fire. Eben puts out some of the flames in order to save the crying infant in, uh, inside the vessel. Both he and Sarah are surprised by two things shortly afterward. Burn much? Not burned at all. Blanket ain't even scorched. Sarah, look. It's gone. Like it was never there. But the baby, Eben. We can't be dreaming. The baby's real. Real as rain and just as pretty. Uh, what do you reckon we ought to do with it? Suppose we ought to turn it over to the authorities. Well, I suppose so. But who's going to believe all this, Sarah? We got nothing to show but the baby and a wild story. They'll say we're crazy. Let's keep the baby. We always wanted children of our own. Eben? Eben, you think maybe we could keep it and, and bring it up like our own? Well, now, I don't know. We could bring it up good, Eben. I reckon we could. Then we can keep it? Oh, we'll try, Sarah. We'll sure try. Oh. The Kents raise the child as if he was their own and name him Clark. Clark Kent, now in his early teens, wonders why he's stronger and faster than other boys his age. Clark, what is it? Mom, 
Why am I different from all the other boys? Merciful heavens, is that what's bothering you? You had me scared for a minute. Thought maybe you was coming down with the measles or something. But, Mom, why am I different? Why can I do things that nobody else can do? Why can I run faster, or jump higher? Why am I stronger than anybody? You've known all them things for a long time, Clark. Why, land sakes alive, when you was a tiny little shaver no bigger than this, why, you was strong as a grown man almost. It's not just being strong, Mom. It's other things. What things, son? Well, today in school, for instance. Yes? We were playing baseball and the ball got lost. Nobody could find it. But all I had to do was look around and there it was behind a rock. Well, you've got good eyes, that's all. No, Mom, it's more than just good eyes. I didn't see the ball behind the rock. I saw it right through the rock. Like my eyes were an x-ray machine. Like the rock wasn't even there. Sarah then proceeds to tell Clark of how she and Eben found the ship that brought him from Krypton. As she speaks, the, the boy begins to understand why he has powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. It's been 25 years since the Kents found Clark. They are preparing for a celebration when Eben has a heart attack. The family doctor is called, but he has done all he can do for his patient. Eben Kent is dead. Clark and Sarah Kent are waiting for the bus to Metropolis to arrive at the Smallville station. Clark is clearly worried about his mother, but she reassures him that she'll be okay. bus will be along any minute now, Clark. It's too late to leave you, Mother. I'm going to be just fine. With Cousin Edith coming on to live with me and all. Besides, you've got a great responsibility to the world, Clark. You've got to accept it. Make use of your great powers. Are you sure you packed that costume I made for you? It's in a suitcase. Nothing will ever hurt it, Clark. Not acid, nor fire, nor nothing else. It's made out of the red and blue blanket you was wrapped in the day your pa and me. I know, Mom. Here comes the bus. Goodbye, Mom. Clark has arrived in Metropolis and has been trying to see Daily Planet editor Perry White about a job. care what it costs. That's the way I want it, and that's the way I'm going to get it. Tell that to Mr. McGuire, and if he doesn't like it, he can lump it. White speaking. White speaking. What? Absolutely no. Certainly not. And that's final. Yes? That young man is still waiting, Mr. White. What young man? Clark Kent. Who's he? A young man who's applying for a reporter's job. He's been here since 3 o'clock, Mr. White. You told me to, uh... I don't care what I told you. I'm not hiring reporters at, at 20 minutes of 6. Anyway, I'd like to fire some instead of hire them. This does not stop Clark, though. He sneaks out a window and walks across the building's ledge to secretly enter the chief's office, where he meets reporters Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen. Mr. White! Who gave you permission to barge in here like a bull? Just got a flash. There's a dirigible flying over the airport with a guy hanging from a rope. Let's see, Jim. I still want to know what... Despite Clark's intrusion, Jimmy gives Perry and Lois a news flash. A dirigible is flying out of control and unable to land. Most of the crew is evacuated, but one man is hanging onto a rope. Seeing this as an opportunity... Uh, Mr. White. Now look here, young man. I'm too busy to talk to you. Well, if, if I could... Uh, that is, if that man could be rescued, and I got his exclusive stories here... What? Uh, would you give me a job? Don't bother me. But would you, Mr. White? Yes, yes. Now leave me alone. Thank you, sir. The man is literally hanging for his life. Gradually, he loses his grip. As he plummets to his doom, he is caught by a flying being in a red and blue costume. The next thing the man knew, he had passed out. He later awakened to find Clark Kent waiting for him to tell his story. Now, the Daily Planet has to scoop on Superman's first rescue in Metropolis. The article was written by new reporter Clark Kent. There are one or two things I haven't got quite straight in my mind, Mr. Kent. For example, how did you leave here later than we did and beat us to the airport? Is that all? Not quite. How come you found the man behind the hangar at just the right moment to get his exclusive story when every top experienced reporter in the business was breaking his neck... Or her neck. Or her neck to get that story? Maybe I'm a superman, Miss Lane. As far as this episode is concerned, this is one of the first episodes of this series that I owned. There were four volumes released in the late 80s, called TV's Adventures of Superman. There were four volumes of this. Volume 1 had this episode, Superman on Earth, the first theatrical cartoon produced by Fleischer Studios, the mad scientist one. 
That was on there in the middle. Basically, all of these sets had two Adventures of Superman episodes. One black and white, one color. And the color episode was, since it also had the first, it had the last episode of the series, All That Glitters, which I'll get to sometime next year when I finish off the series. That was the first volume. The second volume was Crime Wave and the Mechanical Monsters from the Fleischers and the Perils of Superman. While Volume 3 was Panic in the Sky, I want to say the Magnetic Telescope Fleischer cartoon, and the Big Freeze, which covered a criminal trying to subvert the, the election process by freezing Superman. And the final volume, Volume 4, had a doppelganger theme, and that had the black and white episode, the face and the voice, the Fleischer, well, Famous Studios animated short showdown, which both of which had a fake Superman. And Jimmy the Kid was the color episode of The Adventures of Superman, which involved Jimmy and a lookalike. So, anyway, back to the episode at hand here. Superman on Earth starts by introducing us to Krypton, just as its predecessor Superman the Serial did. And as we get our first look at the Temple of Wisdom, with its burning torches and marble columns, yes, you get, you know the story as well as anybody else. All of the Kryptonians are wearing old Flash Gordon costumes, showing that the producers of this show were willing to spare absolutely no expense to get this done. Actually, these people spared every expense. Anyway, now one thing I'm going to notice here uh, that I noticed right away about white-bearded Roseanne. When I was a kid, I thought I thought his name was Roseanne. I always wondered why uh, this guy, this wizened council president had a woman's name, but apparently it's Roseanne. So, as an adult, I know these things. As a kid, I did not. A lot of people give Marlon Brando a ton of crap for calling Krypton Krypton. But apparently Roseanne here does it first, and nobody says anything to him about it. I'm sure that Marlon Brando wasn't basic his performance on this. I'm sure it, all that crap that Brando gets for calling it Krypton is Brando being Brando, but... I just want to point out here that the actor who plays Roseanne, Herbert Rawlison, does the same thing here. And this actor is one of my favorite Jarrells, and God bless IMDb, they don't have his name. So he's not going to be identified because I am too lazy to do any additional work at 11.13 in the evening. I like the way he speaks with a passion that the other actors in the role just didn't seem to have, and he doesn't care that they're laughing at him. I'm going to compare him to what we've seen before, the actor who portrayed Jor-El in Superman the Serial, who spoke very plainly and very coldly. He didn't seem to have a lot of emotion in his voice. Moving right on, this council is outraged the minute Jor-El indicates that Krypton might be about to face its destruction. And this time around, Roseanne seems to be Jor-El's supporter. Or, at the very least, he's letting the man speak. Well, in Superman the Serial, the Council was skeptical. And they wanted facts and more information. They weren't as dismissive or ridiculing as this, even if they did laugh at him as he walked away in the Serial. In this case, these guys are just... They don't want to hear it. And you can see the facial expressions for Gauguin. And this just shows he's not taking this seriously at all. So, they basically laugh Jor-El right out of the council chamber, even while volcanoes are erupting around them and the planet starts to split apart. So, Jor-El leaves the council and goes back to his lab, and this is where we meet Lara for the first time. And at this point, Jor-El is dismissive of the council. He seems to have given up on his plan for saving all of Krypton, and he's going to let them laugh, basically to their own destruction. It's interesting here that Jarrell's initial plan was to send his entire family to Earth. But he's just starting to realize that he might have waited too long. Apparently his calculations were not as correct as he thought. Interestingly enough, here Jarrell thinks to save his wife first. And she's the one who decides that they're going to send the baby to Earth. Although he still tries to send both, trying to convince Lara that there might be some room for both of them in the pod. But Lara shows her love for Jor-El, stating that she... They lost their new world without you, Jor-El. 
If anyone is to survive, let it be our son. But there is a nice moment that follows that, and it's heartbreaking as after they put Kal-El in the ship, she has a moment of weakness in which she reconsiders what she's doing and tries to pry the the ship door open. You know, it's a nice moment and Jarrell comes up to her very gently and kind of walks her away as he finishes the countdown sequence. Then we move on to a nice shot of the rocket taking off. It It's going straight up in the air past some clouds. I wonder if they found that in some kind of footage or if that's a shot that the show did. Now, obviously, this episode is only about 25 minutes. We don't have a lot of time to watch the ship hurtle through space. So basically, we don't even see Krypton explode. Basically, next thing we see, this ship flying through space and reaching Earth. A nice view of North America as it pulls up. Obviously, this episode is only, like I said, only 25 minutes. It has to go through Superman's origin story very quickly, which means he has to be born on Krypton, leave the planet, grow up in Smallville, and make his first appearance as Superman in record time. Imagine Superman the movie, basically everything from Krypton to basically the helicopter scene being done in about 25 minutes. This is a very content condensed version. No time is wasted. Very tight episode. We quickly dissolve to the classic shot of, of Sarah and even Ken driving, and as the ship crashes, it sticks right in the ground like a javelin. i am said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Krypton is supposed to be this advanced civilization. Folks, landing gear. And, you know, for farmers who have just seen a spaceship crash not two feet in front of them, they are awfully calm about this. So anyway, Eben... Wastes no time, he's going to be a man of action here, and he's going to go right up to the rocket, and apparently the rocket is not invulnerable, as the metal has been weakened by the crash and the flame, and even kind of kicks the at the rocket, and it breaks in half, giving him an opportunity to pull out the baby. And it's still a baby, so he hasn't hurtled through space for several years, like Superman will in other incarnations. They take a moment to marvel about how the baby isn't burned, and how the blankets aren't scorched. It's Sarah's idea to keep the baby. Eben is unsure, but they decide to give it a try. You know, they put about as much thought into deciding to keep an alien child as the average family gives into the decision of getting a dog. They make it quickly, but because, hell, we only have 25 minutes and we're probably about 10 minutes in at this point. The narrator quickly advances the story for us until we meet up again until he's age 12. Apparently back then it was easier to just take somebody in without anybody asking questions. Clark comes in while his mother is cutting some vegetables. He looks like a 50s greaser here, but according to what we're going to see later in the episode, this is definitely not the 1950s yet. Clark, on top of all the other pressures that go with being an, being an adolescent, he is realizing that he is different from everyone else, and he discovers his x-ray vision at school while seeing a baseball behind the rock. Obviously, this show has neither the time nor the budget to show Clark at school, so he basically comes home and tells his mom a story. And this is when they decide to tell him about how they found him in the rocket. And the kid is confused, but he's playing it well, you know. He's a little whiny, but I imagine I'd be pretty whiny in this kind of situation. And, you know, as Sarah tells Clark the story, the camera zooms in on the boy's face. And he gets this faraway look in his eye, you know. This young actor does a good job here of showing the wonder he must be feeling as she tells this story. And the narrator makes a point of telling us that he understood. Apparently, that story made everything click for him. I really like this transition with the years going by and on the screen bringing us to 1951. Even though this episode was released in 1952, all of season one, including this episode, which was ironically filmed last, but aired first, was were filmed in 1951. So, for us, 1951 is the present day. And so the years went by, spring melting into summer, and summer into fall, and fall into winter. The boy Clark grew into tall young manhood, while Eben and Sarah Kent grew older and grayer. And the next scene, we find out that it's Clark's 25th birthday. So, we can set up a little bit of a timeline for the show at this point, if Clark is 25 in 1951, Eben says that it's April 10th, so we can surmise that 
Clark was pulled out of the rocket on April 10, 1926. So he would have been 12 in 1938, about 12 or so years before the greaser look became popular. But Clark is about to have a really crappy birthday, as Eben has a heart attack. And, and after we cut from Eben on the couch, telling Sarah to ring the doctor, we see our first view of George Reeves as Clark Kent. He's not wearing the glasses here. He's kind of waiting at the door, looking out the window. It's a very nice look of George Reeves as Clark Kent. No glasses yet. And they did a, the makeup artist did a pretty good job making George Reeves, who was pushing 40 at this point, he makes a pretty convincing 25-year-old. Like I said, this episode is not wasted any time as we go straight from Eben's death to, to the Smallville bus depot. Yeah, that's right. It says Smallville. Smallville must have been established sometime before this. I don't exactly know when. Now we see a nice tender scene between Clark and his mother. Clark understandably doesn't want to leave his mother alone, but she assures him that it's okay because her cousin or Clark's aunt or whatever it is, is going to stay with her. That should be, give Clark the peace of mind that he needs to go to Metropolis and do what he needs to do. And yet, even though the synopsis says Smallville was in Kansas, that was a fact that was not established until 1978 in Superman the movie. In a lot of the early comics, Smallville was basically a suburb of Metropolis. The idea of Clark taking the bus from Smallville to... Metropolis isn't really that big of a stretch. When Clark is waiting for the bus, he's wearing the suit that we're basically going to see him wear throughout the entire series as Clark Kent. It's basically a gray, single-breasted suit with what appears to be a black tie, white shirt. Obviously, this a lot of the scenes were filmed together, such as, you know, scenes of Perry's office would basically be filmed all at once over multiple episodes. So it was important for that kind of continuity for the characters to basically wear the same thing all the time. Looking at Sarah's face, you know, she's sad to see Clark go, but you can see a sense of pride on her face as her son is making his first steps in, into the world and toward his destiny. Very nice scene there. And I really like this montage of Clark arriving in Metropolis and putting the glasses on for the first time. It's basically just city images with Clark walking, you know, Clark is a little transparent, transposed over the images and the narrator again pushes the story along. And so Clark Kent, strange visitor from another planet, takes the first step toward dedicating his amazing powers to the cause of justice. He has resolved to keep secret his Superman identity and to adopt a pose of mild-mannered timidity as Kent in order to safeguard the masquerade. And in order to be at a place where he can learn immediately of any emergency that might require his help, he seeks a job as reporter on a great metropolitan newspaper. There's not too much narration in these episodes, but it's necessary here so we can push the story forward, getting Clark where he needs to go. And we go straight from this to... Basically, the first view of John Hamilton as Perry White. And this is Perry White in his rawest form. He is overwhelmed and screaming into three phones. It's a sight to behold, and John Hamilton is my favorite Perry White. A lot of the way I see Perry White is defined by his portrayal in this show. Clark is up, meets the receptionist, Miss Backrack. Perry doesn't want to see him. And the receptionist smiles at him before he walks away, but we never see her again, I believe. We do, will see a character named Miss Backrack again, but as I recall, she's older. So I don't think, we, I don't think we're going to see this particular actress again. And here's our first look at Lois Lane, as Perry calls her into his office for the extremely important task of opening up a bottle of some kind. And she does it, and I like Clark's method here. He gets away from... Miss Backrack, and he walks along the ledge, very casually, and into Perry's office. And it scares the hell out of Perry, who demands to know how he got in there. And Perry is still screaming as Clark defends Miss Backrack. Now, you must be thinking by now, we've now seen Clark, we've seen Perry, we've seen Lois. Who's left? That's right. Jack Larson is Jimmy Olsen. And he comes barging into Perry's office to deliver some exposition. 
and he has all of the youthful enthusiasm you would assume with Jimmy Olsen, and Perry screams at him. John Hamilton and Jack Larson have great chemistry as Perry White and Jimmy Olsen, and it's only going to grow throughout the course of the show, especially as we get into the uh, Don't Call Me Chiefs. I'll let you know when we get to the first one of those. But Jimmy brings in the news flash about the man hanging from the rope from the dirigible. And at this point, Clark finally wears down Perry with possible exclusive on the man's rescue. I think Perry just agreed to it just to get rid of the man. I don't think he thought anything would actually come of this. And he he's finally calm when everybody leaves and he looks up and he just says, crazy. Just crazy. I'm not sure who he's calling crazy, probably Clark, but there's that. And now the music will rev up as Clark goes into the storeroom. And we're going to see this a ton throughout the course of this show. And then Superman bounces out the window, and here's our first look of Superman flying over the city. You know, this is a, and this is a beautiful shot of George Reeves suspended on wires, flying over a, probably a rear projection of some city stock footage. This is still the point in the show before they used stock footage to illustrate him flying. Like I said, this is one of my favorite shots of Superman flying in this series. There are others in the first season, and I'll show them, and I'll point them out as I get to them. I don't know how this guy here got here hanging from the rope, but he falls and Superman catches him. And then we go back to Perry's office. The man establishes that Superman's costume is red and blue, even though in a black and white episode we can't see color. Even he can't see color as George Reeves' costume is actually gray and brown, but even though the episode is in black and white, in our minds we know the characters are seeing color. So, he establishes for us, and for many people who may not have seen comics and not actually know that Superman's costume is red and blue. When I was talking to Bob Fisher a couple weeks ago, he pointed out that the first time he saw Superman in color was in a comic book several years after he started watching this show. So, he might have intellectually known that Superman wore a red and blue costume, but he wasn't seeing it in this show, and that's kind of something we need to remember when we look back and evaluate these shows. So anyway, we're get back, getting back to the conversation of what's going on, and obviously Perry is in absolute disbelief about what he's saying, as says it's ridiculous and impossible and there can't be any such thing, and the mechanic calls him a super guy. And then we find out that a newspaper headline calls him Superman, and there's a byline by Clark Kent which I found this a little strange. I'm not sure if Clark had enough time to write this story or had anywhere to write it. But maybe he called it in to rewrite. But either way, the byline goes to him and he is suddenly hired and is going to get his own office. Well, we'll know that when we see the Daily Planet staff again. Lois, though, automatically smells something funny about this guy. And here she is being a reporter right off the bat questioning him on his speed getting to the airport and finding the mechanic in the right place. Of course, George Reeves gets the last word, and he jokingly says that maybe he's a Superman, you know, hinting that this new reporter might not be everything that he seems. You know, that is just a great first episode and a great way to start the show. And like I mentioned, it's a very condensed origin of Superman, and it's one of the better ones. It works best. Condensed, nothing wasted. Everything you need to know about who Superman is in 25 minutes. With that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, play another promo, and then I'm going to come back with the second episode of Season 1, The Haunted Lighthouse. Hang around. Hey everybody, I'm Paul Spataro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins, along with my friends Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Okay, so, anyway, what we do is we review three comic books. We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC, and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So, tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at 2TrueFreaks.com. Alright, welcome back folks. We're going to move right on ahead to The Haunted Lighthouse.
This episode was first aired on September 26, 1952. It was directed by Tommy Carr and written by Eugene Solo. Guest stars include Maudie Prickett as the Parrot, Jimmy Ogg as Chris Carmody, Aline Roberts as Alice Horn, Sarah Patton as Mrs. Carmody, Stephen Carr as Coast Guard Lieutenant Harris, William Challey as Mac, and Effie Laird as Aunt Louisa Horn. Now, unlike the previous episode, I don't exactly remember when the first time I saw this episode was. I don't really remember watching it when I was a child that much. So I'm going to guess that I watched this episode for the first time probably in the mid to late 2000s, whenever I picked up the complete first season DVD of this series. As far as I can tell, the sets for season one, at least, were released in either January of 2006 or October of 2005, so I know it was before I moved upstate, which would have been September of 2006, so I know I watched this somewhere before then because I seem to remember watching a lot of these early episodes where I live now. I moved away for seven years now, back where I was then, so a little bit of trivia there as I do live now, again, in the house that I grew up in. So, anyway, when I saw this episode for the first time, it's not really that important, but it is more recently than some of the other episodes. Unless I saw it as a child and don't really remember. And I'm rambling. Here's our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. From the very first moment that Jim Olsen set foot on Moose Island off the coast of Maine, to spend his vacation with his Aunt Louisa Horn and his cousin Chris... He had a feeling that something was wrong. Aunt Louisa's house was the only one on the island, a gray, weather-beaten cottage with the sea almost at the front door. Aunt Louisa herself seemed very nice. Jim hadn't seen her since he was a baby. Couldn't even recall what she looked like. But underneath her pleasantness, Jim sensed a feeling of strain, of anxiety. His cousin Chris, whom he'd never met before either, baffled Jim completely. He seemed deliberately unfriendly. Aunt Louisa's house was spotlessly clean, kept that way by Alice, the pretty housemaid. But when he was introduced to Alice, and Jim realized the poor girl was deaf and dumb, his heart sank. He felt immediately sympathetic toward her. And besides, it left only his Aunt Louisa with whom to talk. Because as far as he knew, Chris, Alice, and his aunt were the only human occupants of Moose Island. Jim's uncle had been dead for 20 years, but Aunt Louisa had kept his room just as though he were still alive. When Jim heard that it was going to be his room during his stay, his spirits revived, and he determined to make the most of his first vacation on an island off the coast of Maine. Actually, Moose Island was a wild and exciting place. There was the old lighthouse that had been deserted ever since Jim's uncle, Captain Horn, had drowned in a storm some 20 years before. There were huge rocks and cliffs with tremendous seas breaking over them. And massive boulders rising from the shore like grim sentinels. Jim was exploring the shore the first afternoon of his arrival when he heard the horrible sound for the first time. Help! Help! I'm drowning! Oh! Many from the mainland believe that they have seen its light shining from the night sky. As far as Jimmy knew, Aunt Louisa, Chris, and Alice are the only people living there. Jimmy is trying to make the most of his time with his relatives. Unfortunately, Chris has been extremely rude, and Aunt Louisa, while friendly, seems to have an air of anxiety and uneasiness about her. Young Olsen has continued to notice something out of place on Moose Island. He has heard a voice cry for help. He has encountered a shady acquaintance of Chris named Mac. Hey! Hello? What's the matter? Did I scare you? <sighs> well, a little. Come on down to the beach and give me a hand. Gotta get that stuff stowed away before the tide comes in. Say, you ain't the kid we was talking to last night. Last night? Oh, no, I just got here. You must mean my cousin Chris. Chris tell you anything about me? No, he didn't. 
And you better go and tell him to come on down here. Tell him Mac wants him. Okay. Tell him to make it snappy. You don't want to get caught by that tide. And he has seen the lighthouse's bright beacon cut through the night's eerie shadows. Even poor Alice has been trying to tell Jimmy that something is not quite right. However, when Jimmy's investigation takes him a little too close to everything, Chris threatens to kill him. Jimmy has just called Clark Kent for help with the, in this mystery. Hello, Clark Kent speaking. Yes, I'll hang on. Jim, how are you? I was just thinking about you. Sure, I got your postcard and... Jim, what is it? Mr. Kent, you'd better come up here as quick as you can. Something's wrong. I, I don't know what it is, but, but you better hurry. Take the first plane if you can. I'll try and meet you at the pier on the mainland if I can get away. Jimmy's urgent summons and the sudden disconnection of the call has prompted Clark to fly to Moose Island as Superman. While Aunt Louisa and Chris are on the mainland, Jimmy explains the unusual events. Jim? Anybody home? Mr. Kent! Golly, am I glad to see you. How are you, Jim? I don't know whether I'm coming or going. What happened? I thought you were going to meet me on the mainland. Chris and Aunt Louisa went out in the boat. I tried to phone into town, but the line's been cut off. Say, how did you get here? Well, Jim, that's a long story. Clark becomes even more suspicious as they look around the island. Clark then examines the note from Louisa had written, asking Jimmy for help. He then compares it to the letter inviting Jimmy to visit. The penmanship is the same, but Clark needs a more current handwriting sample from Aunt Louisa. It may be the only clue to solving this strange mystery. As Superman contacts the Coast Guard, Jimmy is examining the recipe written by Aunt Louisa. It does not match the message he had gotten on the previous night. Shortly afterwards, Alice gives the cub reporter another warning note from Aunt Louisa. He then sneaks out of the house to look for Clark. Jimmy finds Chris and Mac in the grotto on the other side of the island. The two men lock the cub reporter inside a cage within the tunnel's rocky walls. All they have to do is wait for the tide to roll in. Once the water is inside the cave, Jimmy will most certainly meet his doom. Chris and Mac are now with Aunt Louisa in the main house. Another hour in the tidal covering move complete. Serves him right for snooping. What's that? Coast Guard cutter. They got the only twin siren on this shore. Come on, Mac. Maybe we can hold them off. Aim at our gas tanks. You might blow her up. A lot of anything we could be able to do in this fog. That's my department. You stand by that contact switch and blow up the lighthouse if they get through. They can't do anything to us if they don't find any evidence. Chris, Alice is up there with her. However, the impetuous young man does not seem to care. All that matters to him is making sure that no evidence of any wrongdoing is found. The Coast Guard ship, with Superman's vision guiding it, is cutting through the dense fog in the, in the murky night. As the boat approaches Moose Island, the Man of Steel sees that Jimmy is in trouble. His powerful arms then bend the bars of the prison that is holding Jimmy, who is free, but the danger has not passed. As Superman is carrying Jimmy to safety, Mac pushes the boulder with a crowbar. The projectile misses Superman, and undaunted, the Man of Steel goes after Mac. The panicked man then attacks Superman with a knife, only to discover that the blade has broken on his chest. No options come into mind. Mac has hurled himself along with a smaller rocket and Superman, but he full misses and falls. Now Superman can finally make certain that Jimmy is not hurt. He wasn't, and Superman is explaining the unusual adventure to him. Superman, how are you feeling? Golly, what, what happened? I, I can't remember anything after they jumped me in the cave. If I'd come two minutes later, you've been food for the fishes. Jeepers, what are Chris and Max so steamed up about that cave for anyway? That cave happens to be the subterranean entrance to the lighthouse, Jim. When the tide is right, they can float a boat all the way in and unload it underneath the lighthouse without anyone being the wiser. What's so wonderful about that? Well, if you're a smuggler, you want to keep what you've smuggled away from the authorities. Its beacon was used to guide fellow criminals to the site. As for Aunt Louisa, she is actually Mrs. Carmody, a former housekeeper of the real Aunt Louisa. Good evening, Mrs. Carmody. I hope I didn't startle you too much. What are you doing down here? What was I doing all those weeks up in that lighthouse? We kept you there for your own good. I know. If I tried to telephone the Coast Guard to let them know what was going on here, you probably would have killed me. It isn't true. We didn't hurt you. Sit down, Mrs. Carmody. Sit in that chair.
Did I do it well? Perfectly. You're wonderful, Aunt Louisa. All my life, I've been wanting to capture somebody with a pistol. Say, where's that handsome Superman? Oh, he went out to find Mr. Kent. Well, now, if I were just 30 years younger... Well, if it isn't Mrs. Carmody's boy, Chris. Good evening, Lieutenant. Good evening, Mrs. Horn. You mean he isn't my cousin, Chris? Heaven forbid. He's Mrs. Carmody's boy. She was my housekeeper before all this nonsense began. He came to live with us right after your cousin Chris went into the service. Who's that? Mr. Kent. Mr. Kent, this is my real Aunt Louisa. So I gathered. My, but he's handsome, too. As a matter of fact, he looks a like... Lieutenant. But the smuggling operation halted. Only one question remains. Who did Jimmy hear calling for help? It was Aunt Louisa's parrot named Peter. He cried, help, help, I'm drowning, in order to be led into the house. Jimmy learns this when Aunt Louisa opens the door after another plea for help is heard. With the bird inside the house and speaking, everyone from Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen, the Aunt Louisa and the Coast Guard officers laugh to celebrate their victory. Okay, this was a very good introduction to Jimmy. As we see him doing what, you know, we get used to Jimmy doing, kind of looking into things and getting in way over his head and getting into trouble and needing to be bailed out by Superman. The episode opens with a great narration by George Reeves, setting the scene of Jimmy and his Aunt Louisa's house. It looks like a small fishing island off the coast of Maine. You know, there is one troubling aspect, and this jumps out to me right off the bat. If Jimmy couldn't remember what Aunt Louisa looked like, why is he visiting her? Why would she randomly just kind of send him a letter out of the blue? The background is clearly a set painting, but it looks very well done, you know. You're not going to find much better in 1950 television than what we're seeing right here. Aunt Louisa is friendly at the moment, and Chris you know, seems very unfriendly and aloof. And then there was a young housemaid named Alice, uh, deaf and... Who the show describes as deaf and dumb, even though that terminology is not used nowadays. It was perfectly okay in 1951. Now, poor Jimmy. He comes all this way, meets a cute young woman, and he has no idea how to communicate with her. Although, if I'm reading this Jimmy correctly, I'm not sure he'd know how to, how to communicate with a woman who had all of her senses. George tells us about the dead uncle who hasn't, who hasn't been seen for 20 years. That's got to be Jimmy's room. No, that's not creepy. George sets the scene a little more as Jimmy hears the woman screaming for help. She's drowning, and this is going to set up the mystery for the entire episode. And Jimmy is going to get in all kinds of trouble just because of this. So Jimmy is out doing his investigation, because what else are you going to do while you're on vacation other than investigating sounds of people saying they're drowning? I mean, I guess hanging out at the pool, uh, having a nice drink, and... Relaxing is out of the question. Jimmy is going to just go walk around and see what kind of trouble he can get into. So this is where Jimmy runs into Mac, who's looking for Chris. He doesn't seem like a very nice guy at all. So Jimmy has no idea who this guy is. And I think between the voices he's hearing and Mac, I think Jimmy is starting to figure out that maybe this vacation is not what he expected it to be. Chris is immediately suspicious of Jimmy, who kind of wants him away from the lighthouse and the beach. Aunt Louisa, despite her friendliness, doesn't look too fond of Jimmy being there either. And she makes this odd comment to Chris that she should be happy that he remembered that she, he, Jimmy was coming at all. These are all clues to what's going on. Looking back, after having seen this, you look back at some of these things and, yeah, no, nothing was right about these people from the very beginning. You know, Chris is showing a short fuse and he's clearly afraid of Jimmy finding out something. And nearly threatens Jimmy. And now Aunt Louisa regales Jimmy with a story about how the lighthouse has been shut down for 20 years. And people on the mainland say they still see the lighthouse, even though she is determined to tell Jimmy that the lighthouse has been shut down for, for that time. Whatever is going on, you know, I'm starting to get the idea that Aunt Louisa might be in on it, at least when I'm watching for the first time. Apparently, the next two or three days were uneventful. Jimmy must have just been kind of sitting in his room for a couple days. But at night, oops, the lighthouse light is on. I thought that was shut down. Because he has nothing else to do in his dead uncle's bedroom, Jimmy is going to put on his walking shoes and he's going to take a look to find out why the abandoned lighthouse is operational. I mean, wouldn't you want to know why the abandoned lighthouse is operational? I wouldn't. I'd be going to hell home at this point. And I'm beginning to understand why Aunt Louise's housemate might be a deaf mute. She can't hear them talk or say anything to anyone. And then Chris follows Jimmy to the lighthouse being extra creepy. 
And like I said before, this is the first episode that really showcases Jimmy as a character, and I love how he looks at everything with that boyish sense of wonder. You know, except for the knife that Chris Duetta said. He's not wondering about that. The intention there was pretty clear. You know, that, that scared the hell out of him. But, you know, that's what he gets for breaking into other people's lighthouses. A lesson when you're on Moose Island. Don't break into the haunted lighthouse. Chris doesn't want Jimmy at the lighthouse and is accusing Jimmy of getting into someone else's business. And uh, that's a valid accusation because Jimmy is getting into someone else's business because that's what Jimmy does. Apparently on vacation, people still give Jimmy orders, you know. And he must be so used to people giving him orders at the planet that he obeys them. Either that or he's terrified. But Jimmy's interest is definitely peaked and there is something going on. And now, Jimmy has a note from Aunt Louisa on his pillow, saying, I'm in trouble, won't you come? Well, apparently Jimmy's knocking at Aunt Louisa's door got the attention of Alice, who's deaf, unless I don't know how, she, because somehow she approached Jimmy as he was knocking on the door. Maybe she came out of her room and saw him standing there. Here is Aunt Louisa scolding both of them for being concerned about her. You know, a nice, grateful woman. The uh, two young people want to check in on her, and all she is is upset at them, you know. Like I said, something is definitely up with this woman. And now we're 11 minutes in, and we reach the planet, and we see Clark for the first time, just in time for, for Jim to call. And at this point, Jimmy is so freaked out that he needs Clark to come bail him out of whatever trouble he's getting himself into. It begs the question, does Jimmy know anybody else? Does he have any other family? I'm inclined to say no for two reasons. One, we never really seek any other family for Jimmy throughout the course of this show. And secondly, if he did have any other family, he might not be seeing an aunt that he hasn't seen for 20 years that he doesn't recognize. It's a job for Superman as Clark abandons his phone call and whatever story he might have been working on and flies out the window and heads toward Moose Island in a very poorly done wire shot. When he gets there, Clark strolls up to the cabin. I know... I love how Clark knew exactly how to find the cabin, and I also like how he can't justify how he got there so fast. I'm not sure how far Maine is from Metropolis, but it's far enough that Jimmy is surprised that Clark has gotten there so soon. Jimmy tells Clark about the call for help, and I love how Clark is walking around in a beach and cave in his work shoes and business suit. He is not exactly addressed for an outing on Moose Island. Clark is immediately suspicious of Aunt Louisa. Jimmy has two notes from Aunt Louisa, the letter that invited him to the cabin and the note on his pillow. Clark wants a third sample. Is it possible Aunt Louisa did not write the note inviting him or the call for help? Hmm. Food for thought. Clark switches to Superman and is flying to the Coast Guard boat and sending them to Moose Island. And because he's Superman, and the Coast Guard does exactly what Superman says to do, because I guess they don't have to clear their orders with anyone else. Alice brings another note from Aunt Louisa. This one says, Alice will bring you to me late tonight. Be careful. They don't hear you. They are desperate people. Aunt Louisa. You know what? If I were Jimmy here, I'd be swimming to, sh to the mainland at this point. I would be getting the hell out of there. We have another sample of Aunt Louisa's writing, but still no proof that Aunt Louisa wrote it as we didn't see who wrote this letter. So... Afraid of violating curfew, Jimmy climbs out of his window like a teenager on a date looking for Clark as Mac and Chris follow him. Because clearly, Mac and Chris have nothing better to do but follow Jimmy. Now, there's a weird production note here. Some of the shots on the DVD are clear and, the, and some of the others are blurry. I wonder if that's the production's way of simulating fog or just a problem with the transfer. I don't know. I probably never will know, but there's that. Jimmy has no problem getting his one outfit soaked. Jimmy can't find Clark anywhere because he's doing something. And Jimmy gets knocked out and left to drown by Chris and Mac in a cage. He's having his first official bad day of the series. Unfortunately for Jimmy, there's a storm rolling in and the waves are pounding the shore. And there's that call again from someone drowning. And in a minute, Jimmy's going to be calling because he's drowning because the water's rising and he has nowhere to go. Mac and Chris are at Aunt Louisa's talking very openly about what's going on with Jimmy in front of Aunt Louisa. And she sounds like she's okay with Jimmy drowning. Hmm. But their musing is cut short when Chris and Mac hear a Coast Guard cutter. And Aunt Louisa is instructed to blow up the lighthouse if necessary. 
And she doesn't want to seem to blow up Alice. You know, I guess she has some affection for the girl, but Chris doesn't care. And I'm starting to think you know, something might not be quite right with Aunt Louisa. Superman is still on the cutter, and he spots Chris with his rifle. Superman is in a hurry, and he hears Jimmy in trouble at the cave. Superman easily bends the bars and pulls Jimmy out of the water. The bars in this episode bend very easily, for, in this show in general, bend very easily for George Reeves. And he does a great job pulling Jimmy right out. You know, George Reeves is very athletic, very strong, and he shows Superman's power very well. He is one of the best to wear the costume. I'm not ready to anoint him the best as Bob is, but I grew up with Christopher Reeve. He's always it for me. But that doesn't mean I don't enjoy other versions like this and the current movies. There is room in my life for all versions of Superman. Max now sees what's going on. He pushes down a rock, and Superman just kind of casually walks out of the way. Superman runs after Mac, and the plastic knife that Mac is wielding bends on George Reeves' body. This is interesting. Mac charges Superman, about to hit him with a rock. But Superman casually steps out of the way, and Mac hilariously falls off the cliff. Possibly to his death. But hey, Superman didn't kill him. Jimmy hears the commotion and thinks it's Clark. But nope, it's Superman. Superman reassures Jimmy that if he was two minutes later, Jimmy would have been fish food. Superman takes a moment here to tell Jimmy how great he is. Superman also informs Jimmy that the cave is used for smuggling in an expositional plot dump. And when Jimmy says he's up for climbing, Superman says, That's the gym I used to know. Used to know? This is the second episode and first time they've been together. What used to know? But these shows can be watched in any order. It's not serialized television. It's just episodic. The characters are reset at the end of each episode. One doesn't. One episode does not flow into the next in the continuing storyline. They all can exist independent of each other. But apparently Jimmy did get a recipe, but we never saw that. You know, it might have been nice to see Jimmy get this recipe, but because the plot demands it, Jimmy has a, a recipe written by Aunt Louisa, but he tells Superman that the recipe is in a different handwriting. Hmm. Somebody is not Aunt Louisa. Now, we go right back to the kitchen and... An old lady is holding a gun on Aunt Louisa, calling her Mrs. Car Carmody, and she tells Alice to tie her up. Apparently, this is Aunt Louisa, who always wanted to trap somebody with a pistol. Some people have strange dreams, and apparently Aunt Louisa has eyes for Superman. Here's Chris, and he's under arrest. Apparently, both Mrs. Carmody and Aunt Louisa have named their son Chris in an amazing coincidence. Jimmy's real cousin Chris is in the service. And now Clark comes in, and Aunt Louisa... Clearly hasn't gotten any in at least a quarter of a century, because she's got eyes for Clark, too. And she looks right past the glasses, scaring Clark halfway to the Silver Age. Again, I'm troubled by how happy Aunt Louisa is to hold a gun on these people. There's that drowning person again, and we find out it's a bird, and the smuggling ring got broken up because a parrot was hungry. Yeah, a parrot. Jimmy fell into this entire mystery because he heard a parrot asking for food. And I'm not sure why a parrot will say it's drowning because it's asking for food, but it does. And that's all I've got for this episode. Next time, I am going to cover the next two episodes of the series, The Case of the Talkative Dummy and Mystery of the Broken Statues. Feedback is always welcome. You can email me at manofscreen at gmail.com. Tell Tell me how good or poorly I'm doing. You can find the show on Facebook by searching for The Man of Screen Podcast. You can find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And please feel free to leave me a review on iTunes. That will help other people find the show. So, until next time, remember, maybe I'm a Superman. Take care, folks. Thanks for listening. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
Podomatic.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com. And you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.